Coming up on Tech Nation, conjure up images of test tubes and replace it with tiny wells on index card-sized trays and robots moving them to and fro. Dr. Chris Gibson, the CEO of Recursion Pharmaceuticals, tells us about their effort to analyze all of human biology and the drugs in their very own pipeline. Then, who knew sociology and criminology were linked? University of Denver professor Jared Del Rosso talks about his book, Denial, and answers the question, will the election deniers always believe the 2020 presidential election was stolen? All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2015, I was able to speak with Dr. David Linden, a professor of neuroscience at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and author of Touch, the Science of Hand, Heart, and Mind. I asked him, what happens when your skin is touched? We think of touch as a single sense, but actually there are many, many different sensors in our skin acting in parallel. There are nerve endings that transduce heat and cold and itch and pain and pressure and vibration and all those different... We're just si- sensors. Sensors everywhere. Sensors everywhere. And when you think of it, it's, it's a very large array of sensors. If we took your skin off, it would be the weight of a bowling ball and it would be the size of nine large pizza boxes. So it's the biggest sensory array we have in the body. And it has all these different sensors, but these sensors are combined in a stream of information that goes to the brain. And so we don't experience all these different touch modalities as, as separate signals. They're, they're blended together in our consciousness. You say there's emotional touch and sensory touch. Yes, that's true. Uh, for every kind of touch, whether it is a caress or feeling in your pocket for a quarter, or or pain, or a sexual touch. There are separate pathways and separate brain regions for the emotional aspect and what we call the discriminative aspect. So let me give you an example. If I were to uh, hit you on the thumb with a hammer, uh, the facts of that, which would get to your brain very quickly to an area called the somatosensory cortex, would all be about where on your body were you hit? What's the quality of the pain? Stabbing, burning, etc. And how intense is it? And then there would be another aspect to it, which is this is highly emotionally negative. Uh, this, and we think of, of pain as being intrinsically emotionally negative, but this is just a trick our brain plays on us. So if you have damage to the emotional touch center of your brain, and I hit you on the thumb with a hammer, instead of going, yow, oh, that hurts, that's terrible, the way a normal person would, you would say in a very flat voice, yes, that hurts a lot. It's it's not like being a masochist, right? Masochists have a big emotional response to pain. It just happens to be positive. So hit me again. Exactly. Pain asymbolics, which are the people who have this damage, have no emotional response to pain. And we only have to look to our everyday language to see this reinforced. So uh, 
we might say, I was touched by that gesture. You hurt my feelings. Uh, and the idea of touched meaning emotionally affected or my feelings to mean my tender emotions, you might think, well, that's just not something deeply biological. That's just a trick of modern day English. But it isn't. It's actually broadly cross-cultural if you look in different languages. So let's get to itch. Itch and scratch. So itch, there's been a big debate about itch, right? Some people have said Itch is a special, unique sensation that must have its very own kind of nerve ending in the skin because it's very unique. It always provokes scratching. Pain doesn't provoke scratching. Itch does. And other people said, no, itch is just a touch blend. In other words, it's a little bit of pain and a little bit of light touch, and you combine those together and it feels like itch, but there's not a dedicated sensor for itch. And this argument raged and raged, and now we know that there is at least one molecularly distinct, uh, unique sensor for itch, that it's not merely a blend. And the exciting thing about that is that means that we will now be able to develop anti-itch medicines that are way better than what we have right now. As you know, if you go get poison oak or poison ivy and you try to get one of those creams to relieve the itch, even a prescription cream, it's not very effective. This Technation interview discusses Johns Hopkins School of Medicine professor David Linden's 2015 book, Touch, The Science of Hand, Heart, and Mind. He's hard at work on a new book, due out in fall of 2020, Unique, The New Science of Human Individuality. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Dr. Chris Gibson, the co-founder and CEO of Recursion Pharmaceuticals in Salt Lake City. He talks about how technology has massively accelerated the ability to perform laboratory experiments, which in turn enables Recursion's quest to map all of technology. Through alliances with such pharmaceutical giants as Roche Genentech, which focuses in the neuro area, Recursion is also developing dozens of drugs in many areas. We'll talk about why their quest for insight into biology is important, as well as one of their drugs now in advanced development. The medical condition is called FAL for short, and those with this genetic disease develop hundreds if not thousands of precancerous polyps in their colons. Then that most human of traits, Denial. University of Denver sociology and criminology professor Jared Del Rosso is here with Denial, how we hide, ignore, and explain away problems. Written as an instruction manual with such titles as How to Avoid Blame and How to Conceal Misconduct, he also answers the question, will the election deniers always believe the 2020 election was stolen? Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com.
And now, Chris Gibson. Chris, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. You said something when we were preparing for this interview that really struck me. For all that we know today and the centuries of science that have preceded us, we only know 2% of biology? Yeah, something like that. I don't know if it's 2% or 3%, but it feels to me like we only know a little tiny piece of what makes each of us tick inside. And what does that mean for drug development? Well, the reality is, is that 90% of drugs that go into clinical trials fail. And I think that's a sign about how little we really know. Many scientists all around the world are doing their best work. And it's amazing to see some of the great medicines that we do have. But the reality is still 90% fail in clinical trials. And I think that's the testament to the complexity of biology to us that we have to unravel and decode. That makes sense. We only know two or three percent of biology, so we've got to fail a lot to get the right answer. Right. That's, I, I'm with that. That makes sense. That makes sense. Now, of course, the technology enables what we can know and it enables the science. How has technology moved from the time, let's say you were in graduate school until now? Describe that progress for us in terms of science. Well, science moves at an incredible pace. Uh, And when I was in grad school, I was doing a lot of experiments myself. So I used my own hands and a thing we call a pipette to move little drops of liquid around uh, back and forth, back and forth. And since then, there have been some huge developments. I think one of the most notable ones is CRISPR. So now we can use what we call molecular scissors to actually go in and cut little pieces of the DNA out of individual cells, and that lets us explore biology. And there's been a huge influx of new automation tools, robots, that allow us to do now at recursion the equivalent of my entire PhD every 15 minutes, uh, which is kind of humbling to think back just about 10, 12 years ago, uh, how far things have come. I hesitate to say it cheapens your PhD, but, you know. Yeah, it may. <laughs> it, feel, it feels that way. <laughs> it feels that way. That's right. Now, everybody knows about test tubes. You know, it's like, oh, you're pouring things into test tubes and you're looking at the test tubes and then you take a sample and look at a, under a microscope. Now we have little wells that you put in like trays of wells. And that's what robots look at? Yeah, think of it as a little tiny test tube, and there's a whole bunch of them on something the size of a three by five index card. And the reason they're so small is that we want to use less of the expensive liquids that let us do the science and ask the questions and use less of the cells. And so on one three by five index card, just to kind of create a mental image of this, there's over 1,500 of these mini test tubes on one of those plates that we call it. So each one of those is a well so that we do uh, huge, huge quantities of experimentation. So we do about 2.2 million of those little wells worth of experiments every week here at Recursion. Well, that makes the 15 minutes look pretty busy now. So it it makes it feel better. We just just upgraded you. We upgraded you. (laughs) That's right. Well, now we're in Recursion's neighborhood. You've got many robots doing many experiments. So let me ask you this. What can many robots doing many experiments do? Are the experiments related? Are they independent? But the data they generate brings them together. How do we think about this? Well, in the past, Moira, uh, experiments were really done to ask very specific questions at pretty low scale. So 
a scientist like me back in grad school would move individual liquids around and I might do 10, 20, 30 experiments at a time to try and answer one specific question. Today, we have robots that are doing, as I shared, up to 2.2 million experiments each week. And every one of these robots is really specialized. So one of them is really good at opening the plates and closing the plates. Another robot is really good at moving the plates from one machine to another. And another robot's really good at moving liquids in and out. And altogether, they sort of create this symphony of activity. Uh, and the end result is this huge quantity of experiments that are sometimes related and sometimes unrelated within a given week. Sometimes we're trying to answer a specific question. But because we're so careful and because these robots are so precise, all of the data we generate each week actually adds to all the data we've generated over the past five or six years at the company. And it creates one giant data set where we can actually start to see relationships between experiments we did today and an experiment we did two or three years ago. And that's really exciting because it's starting to help us unravel and decode maybe beyond this small percentage of biology that we know today. Now, I want to back up a bit because uh, I really think it's fascinating how you are able to look into these Bitty, bitty test tubes, all wells, <laughs> with little things in it. Now, for a single cell, which is very tiny, you put a fluorescent tag of a different color on each layer of the cell, starting on the inside with the nucleus, DNA, and going out each layer to the cell membrane. And you shine a light on it. The computer shines a light on it. The robot does. But as you change the wavelength the different tags light up so you can make seven images of each cell from the inside out. Did I get that right? Yeah, that's right. And, and you can imagine this almost like if you've ever been in a room with a dark light uh, and you have like a white shirt and all of a sudden it glows. So we're tagging different pieces of the cell with these dyes that glow when you shine different kinds of light on it. And so when we take a picture with each kind of light, we see a different piece of the cell, the seven layers, as you mentioned. And at the end, we've taken these seven pictures and we see little pieces of the cell, what we call cellular organelles. And that sounds a lot like organs in a human. And you can think of it the same way. It's the, it's the components that make the cell tick. Okay, so let's say that we have a cell and it's, it's just by itself. We took a picture of it. We know what it looks like. And then we put our little molecule, our drug, into the cell. How might the lights change? They can change in thousands of different ways. Some of those dyes might uh, the, be staining something that gets bigger. Maybe a piece of the cell gets bigger or the shape changes or it moves where it exists in the cell, maybe closer to the edge or closer to the center. And when you stain all these different seven organelles, and then you look at all those changes related to each other, you get an exquisite fingerprint of biological state. And, and it's actually not that different from what your iPhone does or your phone does when it looks at your face. It can tell all of us apart by the eyes, the nose, the ears, the mouth, the shape, the size, the distribution of those features. And we're doing the same thing with human cells, but we're doing it at extraordinary scale. We've taken over a billion of these images. Now, I have to tell you that if I look back over almost a thousand biotech interviews, Lots of people have said to me, well, we put our drug in and it turned out it, it would get into the cell, but it would be turned around and rejected by the cell. And then other people would say never got in. And then other people said, yeah, it got all the way in, but it just didn't do what we thought it was going to do. Are you able to tell that with these images? 
That's right. And I think this is what's so cool about this approach is that we're not just building one experiment to ask, does the drug get in? And another experiment to ask, does it bind with the one protein we expect it to bind to? We're doing an experiment that gives us sort of like a holistic representation of everything happening in the cell. It's like a map of, of what's happening in the cell. And so we can often tell whether a drug got in or not. We can often tell whether a drug is hitting different kinds of proteins. And all of that data is in each one of these images. And the more images we have, the better we can get at recognizing what certain signals mean. Now, sometimes do you put two or more different kinds of cells in one of these wells for an experiment? Yeah, that's right. So cells interact with each other. And so you can add different kinds of cells to the well and see how they interact with each other and then see how... For example, if you add a, a potential drug, does it affect one cell, both cells? Does it make one cell affect the other cell? And this starts to help us further unwind that complexity of biology that we've been talking about. So let's put it together. You have seven images of the seven layers of a cell all by itself. And then you have seven images of the seven layers of a cell when it has a drug and or seven images of seven layers of a cell with different kinds of cells. This means a lot of images and a lot of data. No human could possibly look at all these images and data and understand it. That's absolutely right. I mean, we're talking about more data than every film in human history in every language in full 1080 high definition. So like, I don't know anyone that's watched every movie ever created, but that's the scale of the data set that we're operating with. And to your point, it's way too much. For anyone, I mean, when, during my PhD, I felt overwhelmed by the amount of data I was generating. And as I said before, we generate that every 15 minutes here. And so we have to use computational tools to help us not only sort through that data, but actually what's amazing more is the computer algorithms that we've built can see things that actually no human can see, even if we had the time to go through all the images. Now let's talk about what recursion does. From my perspective here, it's two things. You use this capability to develop drugs, that you do that yourself. Recursion does that. But you also are in partnership with other very well-known drug developers. And let's start there. As I understand it, you have a, a 10-year partnership going forward with Roche Genentech. I, I guess there's also Bayer in there. What are you doing? How are you working with them to the extent that you can tell? Absolutely. So with Roche Genentech, we're exploring the whole of neuroscience. So all of us are familiar with terrible diseases like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, ALS. And these are actually areas where there have been a few good drugs, but actually way, way fewer than I think all of us wish there'd been. And so we're going on an exciting voyage with our colleagues at Roche and Genentech to map neuroscience to try and understand how neural cells from people respond not only to all these different potential drugs that we have at recursion and, and at our colleagues' uh, locations, but also to understand how every gene in the human genome actually plays a role in these different cells. And the hope, the goal, is for us to actually develop up to 40 new medicines, 40 new medicines in neuroscience and one oncology indication with our colleagues over the next decade. And that may not sound like a lot to everybody here, but there's only about 40 new drugs made every year in the whole world. So this would be like for just us and them, 
over 10 years to do what the entire industry is doing uh, in a single year. And, and not only that, doing it in an area of biology that's so, so challenging. And Recursion also has a dozen drugs in their pipeline. And I'd like to talk about the most advanced. You have three drugs in phase two, which is just you know prior to phase three. Let's talk about the one that relates to colon cancer. What is it? What's it trying to do? Um, and if we were a subject in the trial, who would qualify? What would happen to us? Take us from day one. Absolutely. So there's a type of colon cancer called familial adenomatous polyposis. And we'll just say FAP for short, because that's quite a, a mouthful. Um, and in this particular type of colon cancer, patients actually are born with a genetic mutation in a gene called APC. And these patients will all get colon cancer. It's a, it's a really, really terrible disease. And so today, the gold standard treatment for a patient with this disease in the developed world is they actually have their colon removed, typically in their late teens or early 20s, and they live the rest of their life without a colon, which has all kinds of effects on, on somebody's you know, ability to live their life, the quality of life. And what's more, they still have a really high chance of getting cancer in the part of the GI system that remains. And so our drug was discovered using this mapping and navigating approach that, that we've talked about using these images and other tools that we're building here. Uh, and this drug, we hope, is going to have an effect in these patients. And so the trial that we've just started is taking patients who've had their colon removed who have this disease, and they're randomized, and neither they nor the physicians who are administering the drugs know what they're getting. So it's called a double-blind placebo-controlled trial, which is kind of the gold standard. And they'll be given our drug or uh, a placebo for a year. And during that time, we will be measuring the number, size, and location of polyps inside their GI tract. And polyps, for anyone who's had uh, a colonoscopy, polyps are these you know, little lesions that are in your colon or in your, your gastrointestinal tract that are sort of like precancers. And often in a colonoscopy, they'll actually snip these out if they look worrisome. But these patients can have hundreds of these polyps. And we'll be trying to ask the question, can we stop the growth of new polyps? Can we actually reduce the number of polyps or could we actually even eliminate the polyps and especially the ones that look like they're precancerous? And if we could do that at the right kind of levels, then this would be a successful study and would be able to work with our partners at the FDA and the EMA, which is the European version, to take this drug forward to try and get it to these patients at a broader scale. And it would be great if you could do it before they had their colons removed. Yeah, that's exactly right, Moira. And I think that's where we'd want to go next. But that's such an effective treatment today that it's actually really not something that we can do in our first trial. First, we have to show that this drug is helpful in patients after their colon's removed. And if we're able to demonstrate that, then we could have the discussion with patient groups and with the FDA about a more aggressive trial, which would be to see if we could delay or even eliminate one day the removal of, of their colon, because as we shared before, that's you know a really a really big event in somebody's life. How many subjects are in this trial? So most of our trials are focused on relatively rare genetic diseases, and we'll have somewhere on the order of sixty to one hundred and twenty patients in these trials. So we have all this work that your robots have done uh, and created all of this data, and not only that, you're now going into these you know the full FDA trials and collecting that data as well. Can all of this be tied together? 
with others, with other data that is being created or has been created? Absolutely. And we, we use data that others have created. One of the challenges, though, is I talked about the kind of uh, noise of biology. And the reason we use all the different robots is because if you do uh, an experiment at recursion and then you do an experiment at a different lab and a different lab in a different city, often there are little variations there that can be really hard to understand. And so one of the real differentiators for us is that we've focused on building most of our own data sets that we use and we build them in-house. And that's really uh, hard and expensive to do, but we think it's a really important piece of ultimately building a data set that allows us to see much more subtle connections across biology and chemistry. I have to give you an award here, Chris. And I say that because you said all of this, you told us all of this, and you never used the term artificial intelligence. But this really is artificial intelligence, right? Well, that's exactly right. And obviously, that's a term that's become overused uh, in many industries. But for us, we really have trained something called convolutional neural networks. So these are essentially programs or algorithms that are trained just like we train our brain by showing them lots of, of different images and lots of different results and training them to understand and recognize differences. And as I shared earlier, they've gotten so good that they can see changes in these images of cells that we take that no human can see. So they're sort of better than we are. They've evolved past us at this one specific task. They don't do a lot of general stuff. They're really trained for this very, very specific task, but they far exceed our own ability at that specific task. Okay, here's my last set of questions. There's just one cluster altogether. How big are these various robots that, you know, some analyze, some load the material in, some move things around, and, and how many do you have? Well, I have a confession to make. These robots are a little disappointing if you're a, a, a six-year-old or a nine-year-old. Uh, everybody expects when we say robots that they've got faces and arms and wheels and they're, they're jetting around. The reality is they are large beige boxes that sit in our lab and they do cool science. But if you come look at our lab, you don't see quite as much movement as you might expect from like a sci-fi movie. But we have dozens and dozens of these. So just the, the robots that take the pictures of the cells. We have over 16 of these, these robots and they're, they're nearly half a million dollars each. And each one of these robots is generating some of the images that we ultimately use. Uh, and this is the biggest installation of those kinds of microscope robots anywhere in the world. So it really is a substantial operation but my six-year-old and my nine-year-old are always a little disappointed because our robots aren't as cool as the one in the cartoons. <laughs> yeah, and Dad's data took 15 minutes. He's very unimpressive. <laughs> I don't know what to say. How many employees do you have doing all this work? So we're just under 500 employees now. Interesting. The robots are doing a lot of work, but the, we still need the humans. Well, we absolutely do. And I think this is a really important point of the advance of, of technology is that you know, we're growing still as a company and, and nearly 500 people and about 40% of those people are biologists and chemists and about 35% are software engineers and data scientists who are helping the robots and the algorithms be directed in the right ways. What the robots and the algorithms help us do is they help that 500 uh, people group just do more work and be more efficient and hopefully find better drugs more quickly. 
But there's, I think, always going to be a huge need for us for great scientists and, and great employees at, at Recursion. And this is true, I think, across every company in the industry. Well, Chris, thank you so much. Uh, you're always welcome on Tech Nation. You come on back anytime you'd like. Amazing. Thank you. This was so much fun. Appreciate it, Moira. Dr. Chris Gibson is the co-founder and CEO of Recursion Pharmaceuticals based in Salt Lake City. More information is available at recursion.com. That's recursion, R-E-C-U-R-S-I-O-N, recursion.com. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Technation podcast individually can be found at biotechnation.com and separately subscribe through your favorite podcaster, including Amazon. Podcasts of whole Technation programs continue to be available on NPR One and other podcast outlets. In the second half of our show, University of Denver sociology and criminology professor Jared Del Rosso. He's here today with Denial. How we hide, ignore, and explain away problems. Stay with us. You're listening to Tech Nation. Sociology and criminology turns out to be a natural match, as is denial in general. University of Denver professor Jared Del Rosso is the author of Denial, How We Hide, Ignore, and Explain Away Problems. He'll answer the question, will the election deniers always believe the 2020 presidential election was stolen? And now... Jared Del Rosso. Jared, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you, Moira. I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about my book. Well, surprisingly, at least to me, in your book, Denial, your chapters are arranged into how-tos, yep. as in how to conceal misconduct and how to hide in plain sight. And these how-tos, they all depend on that very human penchant for denial? Yeah, definitely. And so the, the book is an is not intentionally uh, uh, kind of a field guide to how to actually get away with these things. Uh, but rather, what, it, what I'm trying to do is allow the reader to see in each of these contexts, our everyday interactions with, with friends, with coworkers, with strangers in, in public settings, or in our culture at large, in our politics and our media, the, the very different 
forms of denial, but also the very similar forms of denial that you might see in those contexts. The, the how-to was, was a, a, a kind of convenient way of framing it because in each of these settings, people are in a sense using denial to get away with something. Now it's gonna look very different. You know, if you're trying to deny something embarrassing in everyday interactions, which is where the book opens, versus you're trying to get away with uh, all the different things our political leaders try to get away with. Uh, it's going to look very different, but you know, denial, yeah, is underlying each of those, those moments in a sense. Now let's understand that we need denial just to survive. Yeah. Yeah. Denial in a lot of cases is, is a, a, a pretty basic tool of our social life, of our interactions with others. If we had to, if we had to freeze our interactions every time there was a small mistake, a blunder, something embarrassing happened, we would find that our interactions would constantly come to a halt. So what what people in my discipline, I'm a sociologist, have been documenting for the past you know, really half century is that when we when we meet those mistakes, when we meet the mistakes or the the blunders of someone else, we generally will try to overlook it. We'll use the most basic form of denial to pretend like we haven't noticed, to let the interaction kind of move on. And in that way, denial is a really foundational interactional tool, interpersonal tool uh, of our everyday lives with each other. Now, one chapter you could have just published and sold as a popular bestseller on its own is how to avoid blame. <laughs> There's yes. a lot, of, a lot yeah. of people out there saying, you tell them anything, they say, it's not my fault. Now, let's get to how people and organizations, how they avoid blame. Yeah. So here we're talking about, really, we're talking about the ways that we use language to try to explain away the things that we've been... <sighs> we've been accused of, of participating in or doing. So we're talking about excuses. We're talking about justifications. And when we talk about workplaces and organizations, I, I think one of the default is simply the, de the denial of knowledge because the places that we, we, we exist in, you know, in the workplace and in an organization are shaped in ways that often we don't know, or we don't fully know what, say, a, a coworker is doing. If we're a supervisor, what a subordinate's doing. If we're a subordinate, what a supervisor's doing. So we can say plausibly, that's why we've got this phrase, plausible deniability. Uh, we can say that I just didn't know. I just didn't know this was happening. And so denial of knowledge is a really powerful form of denial in workplaces. And it's, it, it tends to be the starting spot until some revelation proves they, they knew or they should have known. Now, here's another aspect to it of, you know, besides disclaimers, excuses, justifications, anything to get you out of the blame. Um, you know, we use denial to maintain the sense of normalcy, uh, mm -hmm. you know, even when we encounter information to the contrary. But as you say, it is a balm but it is also an irritant thinking of those organizations. Does that mean one man's balm is another man's irritant? I think it's, it's, it's contextual. It's when are we using denial and to what end? So it, it's a balm in the sense of uh, when, when there are things 
that we don't actually genuinely need to correct. They don't, they don't cause social harm. This is the moment I'm talking about with embarrassment, with, with small mistakes. What, what these everyday forms of denial can do is they can just kind of let us get by. They can kind of smooth out the rough patches of, of living a life in real time with others when things will inevitably go a little sideways. But it's an irritant in the sense of, you know, in our workplaces, in our politics, in our culture at large, when we pretend that our problems don't exist, for a moment, it can seem like we can get by, we can, you know, we can do our normal life while those problems are somewhere in the background, but they do persist, they do endure to, to great harm to the people who are most exposed, most vulnerable to those problems. And here we can talk about, you know, climate change, systemic racism, COVID denial, things like that, where you know, to an extent, you know, you have to background them for moments, but it's when the denial is systemic or, or systematic that those harms are really left to linger. There really is a kind of drift in a way towards, towards groupthink, towards silence, towards, yeah, towards denial. Now let's get closer to ourselves. Let's look at denial in interpersonal relationships. And it's in your first chapter, How Not to Notice. Yeah. Yeah. And the act of not noticing is really powerful. And it is to me, mm, not the most consequential form of denial, but in many ways, the most interesting form of denial, because it saturates our every, everyday life. So, you know, you think of a moment where you've, you've noticed someone do something, something that would be embarrassing to them. Uh, the, the, the kind of classic examples are a public speaker with something in their teeth or, or someone who's misbuttoned their shirt. And rather than bringing everything to a halt and pointing that out in front of other people, often what we do is we engage in, in what I call in the book tactful obliviousness. So this, this kind of nonverbal behavior that suggests we haven't actually noticed something that's so obvious, of course, we noticed. So we'll maintain really intense eye contact or we'll look beyond the person. You know, if they're a public speaker with something in their teeth, we will stare at their PowerPoint. And I, I do this to myself intentionally on the first day of my class on denial, where it's kind of a classic experiment in, in social psychology and criminology to, to violate a social norm in a small way and see what people do. And so on my first day of my, my, my course on denial, I will misbutton my shirt or wear my sweater inside out or have something smeared on my face. Or when I was teaching online, have, have my webcam aimed at the top of my head. And we will go 30, 40 minutes with <laughs> students making intent, like the best eye contact you'll ever see in a classroom because they don't want to get let on that they've noticed that my sweater's inside out. And it's not until we start talking about denial. I say, what are some phrases for it? And they say, turn a blind eye, the elephant in the room, head in the sand, that they realize they're describing what they're doing. And maybe one person is, is that lone dissenter, that black sheep, and will say, hey, do you know what's wrong here? And then we can have a conversation. But the, the, the point isn't that that's unique to the classroom. That's what we're often doing when we notice something just a little bit askew, just a little bit embarrassing. We don't want to get too close to it. So we pretend like we've not noticed. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn. And my guest today is University of Denver sociology and criminology professor Jared Del Rosso. He's here today with Denial, How We Hide, Ignore, and Explain Away Problems.
Well, I get the sociology part, but where does denial come in in criminology? Yeah, so denial actually has some really deep and classic roots in criminology because we are most likely to see people try to deny accountability, deny responsibility, deny harm when they are accused of actually doing something that is indeed harmful. And this is most most obvious and most formalized when someone's been accused of committing a crime. So the study of, of, of excuses and justifications has deep roots in criminology. What's interesting to me is that we see these excuses and justifications you know, when you do something, when, when a person does something that, that, I mean, it's not even, it's not legal. It's not even immoral. It's just simply an inconvenience to someone else. You show up late to a meeting, you rely on an excuse or a justification. In many ways, they take the same structure, although they're going to look a little different than when someone's been accused of a crime. And so I think it's important to know that that context really does matter. The harms really do matter. Even if the denial is superficially similar, its consequences will look different and will be different depending on what indeed is being denied. But um, the study of excuses and justifications is part and parcel of the study of criminal behavior. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> We're all criminals. Yeah. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> but I think it's very interesting that, in fact, there, there, has not, there has not been a formal science of denial. So mm. the definitions, I guess, are multiple disparate? Mm-hmm. How would you describe this? Mm-hmm. the study of denial? Yeah, fragmented. I think I think it has a different, I think denial looks very different depending on what discipline you call home. So a psychologist studying denial is going to approach it very different than a sociologist or a criminologist where uh, on the psychology side of things, we're talking often, not exclusively, but we're often talking about internal cognitive processes, things like affirmation biases, how we filter out information in order to maintain a particular belief system. Sociologically, I'm drawn to the external tools that we use, the external strategies that we use among people so that we don't have to collectively acknowledge the problems that are happening, the problems in our midst, in a sense. Or if we have acknowledged them, we we can downplay them so they don't seem as bad as they do. So for me, it's these outward, external, interpersonal and cultural tools to make sure people are not noticing, talking about, or taking seriously the problems that we we know kind of are there. Sort of a professional approach to your chapter on how to be a bystander. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so that chapter is really at the intersection of social psychology and sociology. So it's, you know, it goes back to the classic bystander studies of the 1960s and 1970s that emerge out of the, the murder of uh, Kitty Genovese in, in New York, uh, New York City, in which allegedly something like 38 people had, according to New York, the initial reporting of the New York Times, witnessed her murder and done nothing. Now, the story was always more complex than that, but that is how that event came to be remembered, particularly in New York. And it led to this, this explosion of really important experimental research showing that people, they're not indifferent to the suffering of others, but rather they're afraid of getting involved, particularly when they're in a social group. And so that's one of the elementary forms of denial that when we're in a group, we don't think we're responsible for intervening in public emergencies and, 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 and public suffering. And 
I think it's really interesting and important that over the last maybe two or three or four decades, people have reverse engineered the bystander research to figure out how to encourage people to intervene, to be helpers, to be someone who takes action. And so that's one way in which that professional body of research has changed how we think about responsibility and action in our everyday lives. You dynamite the idea of the lone denier. What is the concept of the lone denier? And in social science terms, what part of it actually doesn't work? So I think popularly there's a tendency to 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 limit our conversations about denial to the person who is the person who is in denial of some of the one of their own with you know personal faults or personal deficits and certainly those forms of denial exist but but they also have a social sociological or interpersonal home always which is to say we learn as, as you were saying earlier we learn from a very young age we learn from a very young age what not to bring to other people's attention and what we can safely bring to another person's attention. And often what we don't bring to people's attention is what makes us and what makes others uncomfortable in talking about, in dealing with. And so we learn from a very early age through socialization, through family, through schooling, what not to talk about. You know, that very common early lesson, don't point. You know, it's, it's very much a, a, a lesson in everyday politeness, but it's also an a lesson in attention and often involves what we don't want to recognize, acknowledge, or talk about. So from a very early age, we're learning that not everything is in play. Not everything should we admit to each other. Not everything should we bring to other people's attention, even within the family unit or school or those very intimate early settings of socialization. It also crossed my mind uh, about the manipulation when some one person will say to another, you're just in denial, independent of who might be in denial about anything. You know, what's interesting to me is this this word denial has had an incredible change over the last century, and particularly over the last half century. You know, the dictionary definition of, of denial is not what we take denial for. You can You can deny something while speaking the truth. You know, if you're accused of doing something which you objectively did not do, you deny it. But today we largely mean that someone is denying something that did in fact happen and they're saying that it didn't happen. And that's actually a fairly new meaning to the word. It's kind of the last half century that denial has taken on this pejorative meaning. And so to 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 make the claim that someone is in denial is definitely going to be part of our po- political life about how we want to interact with our political opponents, the things we want to say that they're not willing to recognize. So it definitely has some rhetorical currency or power to to, to make that accusation. And much of your book is how you recognize how someone is is in denial or an organization is in denial or whoever is in denial. And it all comes down to attention management strategies, how do you recognize them? So uh, the very short answer is to, to read the book, but the longer <laughs> answer, the longer answer is what the, what I try to do in the book is uh, I, I was trying in a sense to offer a field guide to the forms that denial is going to take to, to, to tell you their name, 
to define it and to then give you the examples that are going to show you when someone is using denial, you know, in the interpersonal setting, so in your everyday life, but also importantly in our political and cultural lives. So if we learn to recognize the shape and to recognize the forms of denial, we can see when it's being used. We can see that this, you know, the next political elite who's caught in whatever the next scandal is, you know, we can know the template before they open their mouth to deflect or to deny responsibility or to deny knowledge. And to see that before it happens and as it happens means we're better prepared to, to understand it, to interpret it, to deconstruct it, to know when it's probably indeed pushing the limit, the limits of what's true and what is actually self-serving. And so to name it, to call it out. Um, I, yeah, I think recognizing the forms denial takes allows us to kind of slow down our political and social lives and, and really see the consequences of the languages, the language that we use and behaviors we engage in with others. And it reminded me as a journalist of how I will ask someone a question and and, and they answer some other question. <laughs> it's like, mm -hmm. what? Mm -hmm. My favorite, my favorite. It's, <laughs> it's, um, it's an old strategy. I learned it from Errol Morris's fantastic documentary, Fog of War with Robert McNamara, who said, never ask, answer the question you were asked, always answer the question you wish you had been asked. Uh, it's, so it is, you know, we call it pivoting in politics. We can call it redirection in sociology to, to turn our attention to something that is safer, to something that is less contentious. One of the, 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 the most common ways is to pivot politically. You know, you see political elites talking about young people in education, even as they're talking about the most, you know, they're asked the question about the economy and they answer it with the question about education. Uh, former President Bill Clinton, when he was addressing the the some of the fallout from his affair with Monica Lewinsky, held a press conference in which he addressed that and he addressed education because education is, in a sense, this really safe space to talk about something that's increasingly less, but seen as largely bipartisan. We we want young people to learn. Young people are valued. So you can redirect to education when you're asked questions about much more contentious, difficult things. Now let's talk about whistleblowers, which we've been earlier speaking of as black sheep, but whistleblowers meant you went big time. It was in your organization. It was to the big media, whatever it is. I mean, they expose the evidence and you go into a number of well-known examples from Abu Ghraib, many, many examples. The truth is, yes. Whistleblowers yes. suffer. Yes, whistleblowers do. And there's a lot that they lose often through whistleblowing. And yet their acts have an enduring legacy beyond that initial moment, that initial loss. And many whistleblowers uh, don't regret taking those steps because they remain secure in their belief that what they did was politically right, morally right, um, perhaps even spiritually right. And, you know, in the case of Abu Ghraib, which is uh, most familiar to me because that, that's, that's how I kind of entered the study of denial through the study of the politics of torture, the denial of torture. The, the, the soldier who 
took the initial steps to expose Abu Ghraib, had his identity revealed by Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld during a published congressional hearing, or not published, excuse me, a broadcasted congressional hearing. And so you can imagine, you know, you have among the highest ranking political officials speaking your name, which was supposed to be confidential, into you know, public knowledge. And uh, uh, that soldier, Joseph Darby, has talked about the, the cost in his community to him, the cost in his family. And yet without that initial exposure, uh, the country would have known far less about U.S. torture. It would not have precipitated what was then a six or seven or eight year reckoning, an incomplete reckoning, a flawed reckoning, but a very important reckoning with the damage that the country had done through the use of torture. And it also precipitated the release of further forms of evidence that came from Guantanamo that came out about the CIA and suddenly the scope of torture over the years became clear. So, I mean, that's an extreme example uh, and the costs were incredible, but, but what has been gained politically, socially, historically is, is truly invaluable. Um, and so whistleblowers meet that initial resistance, meet that initial, those initial threats, uh, loss of jobs, and yet they produce profound social change, political change, cultural change. Well, you do right. Collective acknowledgement can remake society, which is exactly what you're talking about here. However, there are limits to evidence in ter terms of persuasion. And we have to think about here the January 6th congressional hearings. Are they playing out as you might expect and, and as we might expect? I think... I think they, they largely are. I think they're unique for congressional hearings. I actually, with, with my studies of torture, I, I looked at congressional hearing transcripts and historically they're really dry, really scripted, slow. They don't use a lot of audio visual, visual, but these are, so that's very different. And yet all these things also play out on a slower timeline, a historical timeline where we need the information to come out. We need, we need public airings. We do need these forms of collective acknowledgement. Because then we can we can over time build movements, build resistance to the, the the forces that produce, you know, in the cases that I've studied, violence, state violence, torture. In the case that you just brought up, um, really damaging lies about electoral processes, and and so in many ways these these efforts remain open questions, which which tends to be dissatisfying. But I, but I think it's politically realistic that collectively they are open questions about how they're going to shape where we're headed. We've talked about evidence, such as all the evidence that the January 6th congressional hearings are putting together. But we haven't talked about lack of evidence. And uh, in terms of election denying, there is no evidence. Two years now, there has not been any evidence, despite a substantial number of people still believing the election was tampered with and, and that's why Biden is now president. Despite any evidence that it was true, will, will they always believe that? Oh, that's a, that's a complex question. That's a, a really challenging question. And I think, I think partly we're talking about some of those psychological processes of you know, filtering information wishful thinking, affirmation bias, um, 
that allow people to filter out information that disrupts their strongly held belief that Trump must have won the election. But that that can't be the whole story because what what we also are seeing is fairly common strategies of using den- of common strategies of denial circulating from the people who have the most invested in maintaining that lie. So, I mean, Trump's default strategy is to just call it a witch hunt, say that the the world essentially, but but especially Democrats and the mainstream media are biased against him, and so of course are making these claims. And so that's a powerful claim that he, he gives his supporters a framework for filtering out information. It's not unique. It's not unique to Trump, although he's given it his own spin of using this phrase witch hunt. Uh, you know, the claim that no, this isn't real, this isn't happening, this is not true, is long documented in, in, in political sociology and criminology. Uh, I, I'm familiar most with it through the study of human rights denial. Uh, you just simply say, these allegations are untrue, they're not happening, the people making them are lying or biased or something like that. If Trump supporters are, are, are filtering out information, they're also being handed a framework for doing so through this discredit, uh, through the delegitimization of the hearings themselves. And so while I, I don't want to make any predictions about whether any, any particular person will, will, will stay in a state of denial. What might happen over time is that political grounds will shift. They might not shift towards more acknowledgement. They could indeed shift towards more denial, deeper denial, the, the, the institutionalization of denial. And yet what the hearings are doing is, is really important because it's giving people who want to push against denial the, the, the evidence, as you said, to, 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 to make that claim, to strengthen their claims. Um, and I think they're producing a really important record for our historical memory of that day. Uh, historical memory forgets quickly, um, and yet the hearings are providing really rich, evocative, tragic evidence that will, will make it forget a little bit less quickly, I think. Well, Jared... Uh... Thank you for joining us. I have to say, I would bet that there's no person listening that doesn't have like five questions for you (laughs) and one share about their life. (laughs) I hope you come back and see us again. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk today. Thank you so much. My guest today is University of Denver professor Jared Del Rosso. His book is Denial, How We Hide, Ignore, and Explain Away Problems. It's published by New York University Press. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.